Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. Leaving the role of the FCA aside and just looking at the position of the UK, my strong view is we just can't go on like this. Today's guest discusses his tenure as chair of the UK finance regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, including his highs and lows in the role and his advice for those now running the watchdog. He also outlines what unfinished business he had on leaving the FCA, and in doing so explains why the time is now for UK policymakers to do more to stamp out financial exclusion in the country. Charles Randall spent 24 years as partner in the corporate finance practice at law firm Slaughter & May, and was the lead external lawyer for the government during the global financial crisis, before joining the Bank of England in 2013 as a member of the Prudential Regulation Committee, and then becoming chair of the FCA in 2018. He left his post in 2022 and has since worked as a visiting fellow in financial services regulation at Queen Mary University of London. Hi Charles, welcome to Following the Rules. Well, thank you very much, Lucy. You left your role as chair of the Financial Conduct Authority in mid-2022. What's been keeping you busy since then? The experience that I had at the Financial Conduct Authority was first of all a huge privilege, secondly a huge learning experience for me, but also thirdly a very intensive time. That was a four and a bit year period where the UK was grappling with the terms of its exit from the European Union. There was a lot of people change at the FCA. And then on top of that, we had the coronavirus to deal with. So a very busy time and also sometimes quite a difficult time with the responsibility of commissioning a series of independent reviews into past failures by the FSA and the early years of the FCA, and then responding to that with a program for change and a new strategy for the FCA. So lots to sit back and reflect on, which is what I've been doing for most of that year, actually. Was it hard to leave? your post at the FCA? Did you feel like you had any unfinished business when you left? 
Oh, yes. And I think whenever you're in a post like that, there's always unfinished business. All you can do is hand the organization on, hopefully in a better state than you found it. But there's never a clean break to any post like that. What prompted your decision to leave? I'd thought about it quite hard for a period. And I'd concluded that given the intensity of what I'd had to do there, which at times, particularly during the coronavirus, and which coincided with a, a wholesale change of the management, I'd become really quite executive. And I don't think it's a good thing for a non-executive chair to become executive. And when they do, it's very difficult to revert back to being a non-executive chair. In my time as chair, we had three different chief executives, and they were all absolutely excellent in their own way. But these are big organizations. And when those sort of changes happen the chair's role becomes more intensive. But on top of that, with the amount of challenge for the FCA, the new responsibilities it was taking on, coupled with the challenges of Brexit, the challenges of responding to the coronavirus, and the challenges of responding to the necessary recommendations for change that came out of the independent reviews, those all added up to many, many days a week. And there wasn't a way of doing that job that didn't tend towards being very, very full time. So I felt that it would be good for the organization for me to set myself some targets of things to achieve. But when I'd done them, to then hand over to somebody else who could reset. And the things that I wanted to achieve were, first of all, to see the new management team and the new board into their posts, to give them a good 18 months to bed down in those posts, to launch the new strategic direction of the organization and also to respond to the reviews that I'd commissioned. And I felt that when I'd done all of those things, that would be a natural moment to move on. Because otherwise, as I say, in those sort of jobs, there never is a clean moment. Okay. And you mentioned one of the things you wanted to do before leaving the FCA was to ensure that the new CEO was established in his post. And that's a reference to Nikhil Rathi, who joined in 2020. And he, on joining, had a fairly ambitious reform agenda for the regulator to ensure that it was able to take on board all the new jobs that Brexit would require it to do and also could respond to the very many challenges that were ongoing at the time, as you've mentioned. Uh, you mentioned also that you had unfinished business on leaving your post. Could you elaborate on what that was? Well, there's a lot of unfinished business. In 2019, with Andrew Bailey, I started a discussion about the additional changes that were going to be necessary to bring the FCA to the place where I think it needs to be. A lot of that is to do with reorienting the way that the FCA responds operation to its mandate. The journey that started in 2019 and that Nikhil has been continuing is to make the organisation operationally much more effective and to direct its very limited resources to the firms and situations where those resources are most needed. It's a multi, multi-year program, and there's no way that if I'd stayed for five or seven years, it would be completed. But also, one of the things I've been reflecting on in the year since I left is the tenor of some of the debates that have been taking place, particularly in Parliament, about the future role of the FCA. And one of the issues that's come up rightly in those debates is whether the FCA should be given an objective of advancing financial inclusion. And it's been clear that Nikhil didn't think that that was an appropriate objective to give to the FCA. And I agree with him on that. I think financial inclusion, for reasons that I'll explain, needs to start elsewhere. If we look at London, the city corporation states that London 
together with New York, is the preeminent global financial centre. And clearly the government has a strong agenda of trying to grow that further. And the new Financial Services and Markets Act 2023 gives the regulators a secondary growth and competitiveness objective. And that's all well and good. But at the same time, research suggests that the UK ranks below the OECD average for financial literacy, just above Thailand and Albania. One quarter of UK adults have less than £100 put aside to deal with bills. And over 5 million UK adults have fallen behind in paying their debts in three out of the last six months. So those are pretty shocking statistics. And actually, most of those statistics were gathered some months ago before the worst of the cost of living crisis had fully hit. So on financial inclusion, leaving the role of the FCA aside and just looking at the position of the UK, my strong view is we just can't go on like this with a two-track system where we say we want the City of London to grow and be highly competitive, but we're prepared to tolerate that level of financial exclusion here at home. And 2024 is probably going to be an election year. It's a pretty perfect time for people to start thinking about this issue and whether political parties should go into the next election with manifesto commitments to have a financial inclusion strategy and to get to grips with some of the issues that I've outlined. Okay, and I would like to get to the opportunities there are in relation to financial inclusion for the political parties as we approach a general election year next year. But before we go there, you're currently working on a paper addressing the factors preventing financial inclusion, or rather the ability of individuals and businesses in the UK to access useful and affordable financial products and services when they need to. Could you tell us more about that? Well, the job of being FCA chair had some high points and some not so high points. But the high point for me was always the visits that I did around the country to meet businesses and consumers and to meet people from all walks of life with all sorts of financial problems. The clients of debt counselling charities, people that Help the Aged put me in touch with, and just to hear about their experience of financial services. And that was in many ways the most stimulating part of the job. And so in the past year, I've been thinking further about this mystifying situation that we have such a globally preeminent financial sector, and yet we have such varied levels of financial capability and inclusion in the country. And so many people feel that the financial industry is not working for them. And so I've been giving some thought to why that is and what can be done about it. In terms of why it is, I think this comes back to my reason why I think the FCA was right not to be enthusiastic about a financial inclusion objective. Why it is, is that to make financial inclusion a reality is a huge coordination task, which needs to start from the very top of government. And if you speak to experts in this field about why people become financially excluded, the answer in many cases is they haven't got enough money. And there's nothing the FCA can do with its rule book to change that position for them. The FCA rule book is largely a toolkit for stopping stuff happening rather than making stuff happen. Now, okay, the FCA does have powers to make stuff happen. And it's used those powers in its innovate work to try to bring forward business models that are socially very useful and to use technology to revolutionize the delivery of financial services. So there are definitely things it can do. It should regulate in a proportionate way. It shouldn't over-regulate. 
it should be clear about its regulation and it shouldn't discourage people from going into various business models because of uncertainty about how the FCA is going to treat those business models. So those are all things the FCA can do, but the fundamentals of producing generations of school leavers who have financial capability of ensuring that people don't fall into financial distress because of limitations on the benefit system or sanctions or weights for universal credits or the inadequacy of housing support. The FCA can't do anything about any of those things. And I think if Parliament had decided to give a financial inclusion objective to the FCA, the real danger would have been that people would have said, well, job done. Now, what's the FCA going to do about that? Let's hold them to account. When the reality is the FCA would have to come to Parliament periodically and say, look, we've done our best. There's not much more we can do with the powers that we've got. It's over to you, government. And by government, I mean central and local government. So a real block now to making further progress on financial inclusion is bluntly the absence of a government-led strategy on this. And the House of Lords has pointed out that there isn't currently a financial inclusion strategy that the government has, that there was under the Labour government that held office until 2010. And with a strategy, there was a lot of progress made. And the number of unbanked people, for example, was more than halved. Um, Legislation was passed to empower auto-enrolment in pensions. The money advice service was set up. Lots of things were done. And I'm not saying that nothing has been done since 2010. In fact, we've had some ministers who I think really got it. I think John Glenn, when he was economic secretary, really got it. But what we haven't had is a commitment from the top in the form of a strategy to deliver defined outcomes. And I think that's the big opportunity that we now have. Okay. It's interesting that you reference that lack of government-led strategy. The current city minister, Andrew Griffith, said in April in a speech that was specifically related to financial literacy and inclusion that his government is doing more than any of its predecessors to support financial inclusion. And he also said then that it is important that the government does everything possible to ensure no one is excluded, whether through lack of understanding or lack of access from financial products, which could help them succeed in life. And he said that the government could intervene directly to help those who do end up being excluded in some way, could design rules and regulations that are mindful of the very real potential unintended consequences for financial inclusion, could support financial literacy and could create the environment in which innovators can bring forward new products that overcome financial exclusion. So that would indicate that there is some kind of strategy there. Yeah, so I think there isn't a strategy. I read that speech and I agree that the government has in particular done something to put financial education on the school curriculum. But what we lack is a baseline, we lack a target, we lack measurement. This isn't something that Ofsted assesses. And actually, when you go around schools and talk to teachers, as I did as FCA chair, what they say is that they don't have enough scope within the curriculum to really do this. And there are also differences about how it should be done, whether it should be done as personal, social, health and economic part of the school curriculum, or whether it should be done as part of the the maths curriculum. And the teachers themselves need support and materials to do this really well. So I'm not saying that the government has done nothing. 
clearly there are areas where it has done things. The Conservative government introduced the Help to Save programme, which provides incentives for people to start putting money aside in savings accounts. The government responded to the access to cash issue by including provision for the regulation of access to cash in the 2023 Act. So there are individual things that have been done, but the real problem that you have is that strategy that advances financial inclusion needs to embrace the whole of government and needs to have senior leadership within government. And what we have at the moment is financial inclusion being led somewhere probably out of the Treasury. Griffith has this within his ministerial brief. It's not clear to me that it really sits any longer with the Department for Work and Pensions, which is where it used to sit. It seems to have moved. And the parts of government that really need to deliver, which includes obviously education, local government benefits, I don't think are working to a coordinated end and strategy. They're all doing their own thing. And that sometimes produces results and it sometimes doesn't. So to really supercharge this, you need a clear strategy with clearer goals and a commitment to report on them and measure progress against them. And that doesn't exist at the moment. Okay. And you mentioned that the previous city minister, John Glenn, got it in relation to the the need to make changes to ensure that the UK's approach to financial inclusion improved. Do you think that the current city minister gets it to the same extent? I wouldn't want to pass judgment on the current city minister. I've never had any dealings with him. He took up his job after I left the FCA. And so my only observations of him are from the outside. What's a huge challenge for him is, well, two things. First of all, as I say, I think financial inclusion, if it's going to be really effective, needs leadership from the top of government. And that probably means that it needs to be a brief that sits somewhere with somebody who sits around the cabinet table. That isn't Andrew Griffith. But secondly, I think it's very difficult to be the city minister and also to have the financial inclusion brief. So this is the question of, can you reconcile the brief of advancing the growth of the UK financial services sector globally with financial inclusion domestically? And can you actually find enough time for both of those issues? And to what extent do they conflict? That's a really difficult brief to fulfil. But I have no reason to believe that Andrew Griffith doesn't care about these issues. I just think it's a really tough task to try and do it all within a junior ministerial brief. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the cabinet understands the importance of making these changes? I haven't seen any sign that it does. The rhetoric that comes out of the government is about the growth of the financial services sector. There's a lot of excitement about fintech. There's perhaps a belief that fintech is going to change everything more than it will, and that somehow or other, some of that will benefit the financial inclusion agenda. And it's certainly true that there are fintech propositions that do advance financial inclusion. But I think there's perhaps more focus on the growth of the financial services sector and its international competitiveness than there is on this extraordinary contrast, as I say, between the size and scope of the UK financial services industry and the number of UK adults who are not benefiting Mm. from financial services. And I don't think that that's really front of mind in government. I may be wrong about that, but I don't see it. And the UK's separation from the European Union has obviously come up a quite a number of times during this conversation. That has presented the government with an opportunity to rethink the UK rulebook for financial services to ensure that London and the city is as competitive as possible post-Brexit. You've previously spoken out about aspects of the Financial Services and Markets Act in which these changes are enshrined. There was an element of it that was quite controversial in which the government had proposed so-called call-in powers, which would have enabled them to call regulators in 
in the UK in for questioning if they didn't agree with a particular approach that they were taking. You spoke out against that, saying that it would threaten the independence of financial regulators, and that aspect of the Act has subsequently been dropped. But is there any element of the Act that now stands that concerns you? What's your view in terms of how the Act responds to the financial inclusion issue? I think rightly, Parliament has decided not to try and put the financial inclusion issue into the already long list of regulatory responsibilities of the FCA. By the way, I would be very happy for it to sit there if there were also a government-led strategy. I think within the context of a government-led strategy, it would then be appropriate to ask individual institutions like the FCA to play their part. But I don't think you can solve the problem by just trying to give it to the FCA and say, job done because for the reasons I explained, it doesn't have the tools to do actually the majority of what's needed. I think the Act has come out as quite a balanced piece of legislation. There are a number of people who said that giving this secondary growth and competitiveness objective to the regulators was a mistake. I don't personally think it has to be a mistake. It needs to be thought about carefully, but I don't think it's necessarily going to lead to quite the disaster that some people have suggested it will lead to. And frankly, a lot about what it entails was already being done by some of the regulators, but perhaps needs to be done with a bit more intensity. The call-in power was a different issue. And I think the problem here is that in recent years, the veil's been lifted and we've seen just how close the relationships are between many parliamentarians and many vested interests. We've seen just how many MPs have lucrative non-executive directorships and consultancies for big finance, and therefore giving politicians the ability to call in the regulators' actions and to effectively regulate the regulators in that way could have ended up with a body that was very dominated by vested interests, not necessarily big finance vested interests. It might depend on the political party in power, which vested interests were put onto that sort of super regulator that sat above all the other regulators. But I think it's really important that the regulator has confidence that it does its job. It's held to account by parliament through the committee structure. And I can tell you as FCA chair, the trip down to the committee is a very bracing experience and focuses the mind a great deal. But I think to ask the regulator to have effectively an appeal body sitting above it, which can undermine its decision making, even though it's much more remote from the facts that go into the decision, would be a very strange structure. There's a separate question which Lord Tari has raised. Andrew Tari used to chair the Treasury Committee and the Competition and Markets Authority. He has raised the question of, should there be a much more powerful function within the public sector to scrutinise regulatory performance. And there's a sense that he has that that's not being currently done and, and probably can't in the future be done by the National Audit Office. And we have seen that Ofwat and Ofgem and others appear to have fallen short in regulating their sectors. And there is a question of how Parliament gains confidence that there's enough scrutiny of their effectiveness and performance. I think there is a good case for a non-political, non-partisan, specialist scrutiny function, but not, not a body that calls in decisions and tries to overturn them, but one that really gets under the skin of performance by regulators. Mm -hmm. So broadly, you seem more positive about the Financial Services and Markets Act. Yes, well, it's a highly necessary piece of legislation because one of the consequences of leaving the European Union is that we need a different mechanism for making financial services rules. And a lot of that is now 
being put onto the regulators. The consequence of that is that we need a series of duties on the regulators to inform Parliament about what it's proposing to do and to provide Parliament with the information that Parliament needs to scrutinise the regulators' activities. There's a separate question, which is, will Parliament be able to have the resources to support parliamentarians to perform that scrutiny function? And that's why I say, I think Lord Tari may be onto something, not particularly with the FCA, I would say, actually, but with the other regulators. He may well be onto something in saying that there is a need for a more specialist function akin to the NAO that really understands regulatory delivery and looks across the regulators to see how good their performance is. Okay. And you've previously mentioned ahead of the general election, which is likely to be next year, all political parties should be committing to financial inclusion with measurable goals in place. Could you elaborate on that? What opportunities do you see that there are here for the political parties as we approach a general election year? It's a fantastic time for politicians to be making those sort of commitments, because as I say, with a strategy in the period up to 2010, the number of unbanked households was more than halved. Arrangements were put in place to support more saving by people into workplace pensions. An organisation was set up to provide trusted advice to people about their finances. So real progress was made. I actually think there's a lot out there that means that more progress can be made now. And we've learned from the auto-enrolment experience that partnerships between employers and saving organisations can be very powerful and auto enrolment policy came in the Pensions Act 2008, which means that when you join an employer, you're automatically enrolled into their workplace pension scheme. You can opt out, you don't have to stay in it. But behaviourally, it's been found that most people who are opted in stay opted in. And that means that they are building up money for their eventual retirement and social care And I do think that the next big thing in financial inclusion is addressing this issue of the number of people who have no savings for a rainy day, who can't cope with an unexpected bill for their car or the breaking down of their washing machine or whatever it happens to be, uh, simply because they don't have enough savings and therefore end up either going without food or other essentials or turning to harmful forms of debt. That's a huge opportunity. And there are really good trials done by organisations like the Leeds Credit Union or Fair for All Finance, which suggests that it's a really promising avenue to pursue. And by the way, none of this involves big fiscal commitments by the politicians. None of this requires a huge injection of taxpayer money, which, as we know, neither of the major political parties will want uh, to commit to. But these new techniques, combined with new digital business models and new ways of doing business, can make a big difference here. And then there are a series of policy issues around the way the benefit system works, for example, which can be addressed to remove some of the worst triggers that put people into distress. And then there are some things around regulation that can be done. So for example, I would like to see it being much easier and indeed it being an expectation that social housing landlords, when tenants move in and need furniture and white goods, will rentalise that expenditure. So will help tenants to spread it over time. And there are some barriers to doing that at the moment, some of them regulatory, some of them perhaps financial. But it's a series of little measures that together add up to the creation of a more resilient low-income population who then hopefully don't have to turn to harmful forms of debt or go without essentials. The opportunity is there for both major political parties to embrace this issue. And I think the time is now to be making commitments. Okay. 
And what opportunities are there for financial institutions in relation to financial inclusion? My experience as FCA chair was that the leaders of major financial services firms, many of them were passionate about financial inclusion and very, very committed to it. And that within their organisations, all sorts of good things were happening to help advance financial inclusion. One of the major banks whose headquarters outside London I visited was really working hard to ensure that customers who had been bereaved recently went through a very good pathway in their dealings with the bank at a time which was absolutely distressing and critical for them and didn't find themselves stuck in some call centre or receiving letters addressed to their dead relative. And it's clear that the leader at the top of that particular bank felt absolutely passionately about how appropriate it was to do that. There's a, there's a lot of interest within the financial services sector to do more. You know, why? Well, first of all, this is part of, of a big business's license to operate. You only need to look at the trough of public opinion that the banks have had to climb out of since 2008 to realise that they've got to show people that they care if they're going to have that license to operate and also have the influence that they need to have in the political sphere. So that's one reason, which is a self-interest reason. Increasingly, their shareholders are saying, OK, you've got the environmental social and governance commitment that we now expect companies to have. We're hearing a lot about environment. We're hearing quite a lot about your governance. But what's your social contribution? What are you doing about that? So I think that's a great opportunity. And then both from a regulatory point of view, but also from a point of view of the technology and techniques that are out there, there's a big thing happening later this month, which is the start of the FCA's new consumer duty. And it, it doesn't require businesses to serve particular markets or to run after a particular financial inclusion problem. But what it does do is re-emphasize the fact that they can communicate with their customers, indeed have to communicate with their customers much more effectively, do much more to support consumer understanding, use the communication channels that consumers use in other aspects of their life. So rather than confronting people with small print, confront them with YouTube video and in words that they can relate to. That's how people expect to be communicated with. And then actually test whether that's effective. How many of your consumers do understand the features limitations, opportunities of your product or service. So for financial services businesses, this is both a challenge because the regulator is saying you, you've got to step up and communicate better with a lot of your customers. But it's also an opportunity to show leadership, gain influence and consolidate your license to operate socially. And the financial services leaders that I met got that completely. Not every single one of them, by the way, but I came across a huge number of senior leaders of financial services firms who really did care. But I think, again, what we see with financial inclusion is that it's a coordination problem. It requires everybody to be pulling in the same direction. As it requires government policy, local government policy, the school curriculum, the financial services industry, the debt counselling charities, all to be working towards a common goal. And that's why, as I say, I think leadership is needed. And that means a government-led strategy. Okay. And within the financial services sector itself, what could financial services companies that are promoting financial inclusion effectively be doing to encourage laggards to follow their example? 
Well, certainly there's a great opportunity for businesses to learn from each other and also to trial things. One of the things that we don't see nearly enough, certainly in regulation, is trials, pilots, small-scale experiments. And socially, with something like financial inclusion, the opportunity to do effectively the equivalent of a randomized control trial, where you take a small region of the country or you take a small group of people and say, does this work? Does this form of communication work better than that form of communication? Do people make better decisions if we offer them this rather than that? Those are huge opportunities for regulators, but also for businesses to take forward. So there is more that can be done. What, of course, the regulators can't do and financial services businesses won't do is provide products that are unprofitable. And this is one of the issues about the debt problem that the FCA has been confronting really since it came into being and took over the regulation of consumer credit firms in 2014-2015. It has been progressively cracking down on different types of high-cost debt starting with high-cost short-term credit, but then also making rules to restrict the rent-to-own sector, so people who were effectively renting consumer goods, white goods, furniture to predominantly social housing tenants, then also restricting the ability of banks to charge very high overdraft rates to its most vulnerable customers. The FCA has got the toolkit to stop stuff happening like that. What it hasn't got the toolkit to do is to require other businesses to enter the market and then serve those customers. And so one of the real difficulties with the financial inclusion agenda when it comes to borrowing is how do you provide a more affordable sector who can lend to people with relatively poor credit histories and low incomes? Are there things you can do through partnerships between employers and credit unions for workplace saving? Is there more that can be done to consolidate and strengthen the credit union sector, for example? This is the really tough end of financial inclusion. Mm -hmm. But I do think that before we get to that, the the business of bolstering the number of people who have a rainy day fund is an opportunity that can be taken without then major financial investment. We discussed that you're working on a paper addressing these issues. When is that paper due out and how can listeners that are keen to read it access it? So one of the things I've been doing over the past year is renewing my relationship with Queen Mary University of London, where I had been a visiting professor for quite a while. And I've started that again. I'm enjoying supervising students and writing papers. At some stage in the autumn, that paper will hopefully come out and perhaps there'll be an event around financial inclusion at the same time. That's certainly something I'm thinking of doing. If that happens, I will definitely be shouting it out about it uh, on LinkedIn, if nowhere else. And And if people are interested, they'll be able to find it then. Okay. And we discussed your time as FCA chair. And in that context, you said that there were some high points during your tenure as chair and also some not so high points. Are you able to elaborate on what those points might have been? Any regrets? I spent quite a lot of my time as chair effectively apologising for the performance of the predecessor organisation, the FSA, dealing with complaints and very distressed consumers who felt that they hadn't been protected by the regulatory system, and also dealing with, inevitably, as there always are in these situations, calls for compensation, sometimes going back a very, very long period. And that's always difficult. What's really important is that where an organisation has underperformed, and it's undeniable that the FSA did underperform in a range of areas and the FCA also had some performance issues. The really important thing is that it acknowledges that, but it puts in place a plan to remediate any remaining failings and to ensure that 
it moves forward and doesn't make those mistakes again. So the low points were accounting publicly, being the face of the organization that says, yeah, we got it wrong. I'm really, really sorry. But I suppose you also have to look at that as a positive, which means you were also the person who was then able to oversee the process of making things better for the future. So it was an intensive period of huge public scrutiny and criticism. But overall, that's something that has added to my life experience, has given me skills that I can benefit from. And the thing I concentrate on is the fact that I didn't just find myself apologizing for the past, but I also find myself being part of the architect of the plan for the future. So no regrets? Oh, I'm not one of those people who says I have no regrets. Over the course of the last 65 years, there are many, many things that I regret. And probably some of those relate to the FCA as well as to the period of my life before that. I find it really important to look at the things that didn't go well and then learn from them. But I do feel very proud of what the organisation achieved over those four and a bit years, coming through the enormous changes to our position in the world, our relationship with international regulators, the way we now make rules, the way we responded to the coronavirus. I mean, the executive absolutely acted swiftly and effectively to give relief to many millions of people who were put into financial jeopardy during the coronavirus. I think that was a really excellent response. And I'm really pleased that the plan to bring the FCA sort of firmly into the 21st century in terms of its data analytics, technology processes, and supervisory style is continuing. And I'm very confident that Nikhil and Ashley Alder will continue to take it forward. So mm -hmm. it's a positive balance sheet from my point of view. Of course, the many people who get hold of your email address when you're FCA chair or post about you on Twitter, I'm sure won't agree, but that's public life for you. I mean, it's a tough role, isn't it? You, you've got an enormous to-do list and you are the person that people will complain to. Any tips or advice for Ashley Alder, who's your successor in the role? Ashley doesn't need advice from me. He's an enormously experienced regulator. I think he'll do a great job. The only practical advice I would give to anyone who works at the top of the FCA is don't look at social media particularly when you're out of the office at home, and make sure that you rebuild at the weekend for the week ahead. Because if you look at particularly the CEO's job, it's really tough and huge respect to all the CEOs that I work with there and the way that they shoulder that burden. Okay. And generally, lastly, what's one upcoming or current challenge you think people are not paying attention to? Mm. Oh, well, that's a great question. The big challenge for the future is what is the convergence of finance and technology going to mean? Obviously, finance and technology have been converging for some time, and all the major financial services firms are technology-driven, and some of the technology firms are getting into finance. But as we go forward and the technology becomes even more challenging, and I'm thinking here of the recent shock we've all had when we've seen the power of generative artificial intelligence, for example, and we start thinking, well, what would happen if that was deployed in finance? That's an issue that's absolutely fascinating. And how are the regulators and the competition authorities and the information commissioner, how are they all going to respond to that challenge? Because it could be good. It could mean that you're getting guidance about your investments and savings that is relatively cheap and right most of the time. But it could also mean you're bombarded with bad stuff that that guides you to poor decisions. And it could mean that for mid-sized financial services firms, they end up trying to use a technology that they don't fully understand. And for regulators, that's a big issue. To what extent do you think that UK regulators, including the FCA, are equipped to embrace the opportunities presented there and tackle the challenges? 
So I think the regulators absolutely get that that's a big issue. And certainly when I was FCA chair, I was keen that we had much closer cooperation with the information commissioner and the CMA, particularly in the digital space. So I think regulators understand the scale of the challenge. The big difficulty for regulators, as for everybody else, is that the skills to really understand the way in which these technologies work and might be used or misused, um, uh, it's always easier for the technology industry to hire those people and retain those people than it is for regulators. And so that's the big difficulty that the FCA and organisations like it have is being abreast of the developments. The challenge for anyone in regulation is understanding the speed at which things are moving and, and how they're moving. Okay, so ensuring they retain access to resources that have that knowledge set. Yeah, well, finding a way to get access because, as I say, you're not going to find it easy to hire somebody at the cutting edge of those technologies. And if you do hire them, they're not going to be at the cutting edge for very long. Okay. Well, there's been plenty of food for thought that you've offered us through this podcast episode, Charles, and perhaps we can get you back at some point next year to discuss the extent to which the political parties have taken on board the action points that you've presented during this conversation. But in the meantime, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks very much indeed. I've enjoyed it a lot. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.